Hi, this is Pierce Boyne, the digital media editor for the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy, or JNPT. This podcast episode is part of a series where ANPT special interest groups talk with JNPT authors about their research, unique and unexpected findings, and how to translate these findings to clinical practice. In this exciting episode, the Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group is interviewing Drs. Catherine Lang and Carrie Holleran. They will be discussing their article set to appear in the October 2022 issue of JNPT titled Improvement in the Capacity for Activity versus Improvement in Performance of Activity in Daily Life During Outpatient Rehabilitation. In addition to being an author on this manuscript, I'd like to highlight that Dr. Catherine Lang is also a JNPT editorial board member and has previously served as an associate editor. I hope you all enjoy the article and enjoy this podcast. Welcome to 4D, deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I'm part of the podcast team of the DDSIG. I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Katherine Lang and Dr. Carrie Holleran, and we're going to start by having them introduce themselves. So, Dr. Lang, if you please introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Katherine Lang. I'm a a professor at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. I run an active research program in stroke recovery and rehabilitation, and we've been branching out to other populations, which um, allows me to be on this wonderful podcast. My job is mostly research with a little bit of teaching and a little bit of administration. Um, I run our uh, PhD program in movement science, and I'm lucky to get to work with Carrie and my other collaborators. Great. Well, welcome. We're excited to have you here. We were just saying we've been wanting you on our podcast for a long time, so we're super excited. Okay. And Dr. Holleran, could you introduce yourself, please? Of course. My name is Carrie Holleran, and I'm a faculty member at Washington University in St. Louis in physical therapy and neurology. I do spend part of my time collaborating with Drs. Lang and the entire um, lab team. I'm also our assistant director for student assessment and program evaluation, and I also teach um, within the neurologic curriculum and some of our ethics, humanities, and law. Great. Well, welcome. All right. So we are here to talk about your new paper that looks at capacity versus performance, kind of in a nutshell. So Catherine, let's start with you. Can you give us kind of the overview, bird's eye view of how this came about and, you know, the kinds of questions that you were looking to answer with this study? Sure. So as many of you know, we've been studying upper limb recovery after stroke for a long time. And in a recent clinical trial that we had run, we had found that um, lots of people improved in their capacity for activity, that is what they could do in the clinic on standardized tests, But um, no one, regardless of how much they improved in capacity, had increased the use of their upper limbs out in daily life. That is the performance of activity in daily life. And so looking at the literature, we got to wondering whether this was a research problem. Did this happen only in our research study, but doesn't happen in clinical practice? Then we also wondered whether this was an upper limb stroke problem. So is this something that's unique to upper limb rehab? And since we have another arm, we don't have to use the stroke affected arm in daily life. Or do we see this in other uh, rehabilitation of other conditions, such as walking? 
And then finally, we were interested in whether this was a unique to stroke problem or would we see this in other conditions? And the other condition that we chose to study uh, was Parkinson's disease. All right. So I'm curious why you chose Parkinson's. Sure. So Parkinson's disease is actually the second most common population that's seen in outpatient rehabilitation. So stroke is the first most common, Parkinson's is the second. Um, people come to rehabilitation or referred to rehabilitation with, with Parkinson's disease to help them improve their mobility and walking in daily life. And then over the course of episodes of care, there's been lots of documentation that people with Parkinson's disease do indeed improve um, their ability to walk on clinical measures. Okay. That makes sense. And, and I suppose you have to cap it. You couldn't just include Correct. a ton of diseases, just logistically or, you know, practically speaking. Well, from a research rigorous viewpoint, it makes sense to choose a candidate other population. And so Parkinson's disease became our candidate other population. As we go forward with this discussion, we can have a discussion about whether or not we think this applies to other neural rehabilitation populations and even other rehabilitations outside of the neuro ones. And Carrie and I are going to vote resounding yes on those. Yes, of course. Um, all right. So before we kind of break down those three questions and how you went about trying to answer them, let's just talk uh, a little bit more broadly about the measures and the concepts of capacity versus performance, right? So when you're talking about capacity, what is that and how is it measured? Okay, so the, the World Health Organization ICF model differentiates that activity level into the capacity for activity and then the performance of activity in daily life. The difference is the capacity is done in a structured environment. So, so all the, the situation is even. So you and I would be moving objects or walking in a space that's similar, for example, with a 10-meter walk test or, in our case, the action research arm test for the upper limb. The performance of activity in daily life happens in the unstructured free living environment. So you can think about it as what you can do versus what you do do. Um, mm -hmm. And the things that affect performance in daily life are those kind of personal and social factors that are on the bottom of that ICF model, right? Those are the things mm -hmm. that um, interact with what you can do to determine whether you actually do do it. And just one other um, thing that's helpful for people to understand is that performance in daily life is different than participation. So that's the next level up on the ICF model. And participation actually requires you to be able to perform a bunch of activities in daily life to fill those life roles. So if I want to fill my role as an employee, I have to do a lot of different activities, including walking to my car, driving my car, <laughs> navigating my parking garage, using my computer, communicating orally um, and, and in writing to people, those sorts of things. So it's it's a division of that activity level into what you can do and what you do. do. Right. Okay. And for our listeners out there, um, the DDSIG did a an extensive podcast on participation, which uh, was a lot of work, but also super fun and a lot of discussion about, Catherine, about exactly what you're talking about right now. And so that's a place to go for people to get a little bit more insight into that higher level, you know, human movement in the world. So, you know, just to clarify, so right now, this, what we're talking about, we're really just focused on capacity 
like what people can do and what they do do in the world, but not necessarily where they're doing it, how they're moving, you know, interacting with family or anything like that. Those are higher participation things. We're really just looking at what they can do and then what do they actually do? Correct. Right. Okay. And I should mention that, you know, every measurement that we take, regardless of the level of measurement is imperfect, right? So we, we measure impairment, we might measure the impairment of strength and we might do a manual muscle test. And if we do a manual Mm -hmm. muscle test where we hold it against a position, all we're doing is assessing the strength of that muscle in that exact position at that exact moment in time. So we say Mm -hmm. that that's a representation of strength and that's our clinical lore. And I think that's probably pretty reasonable, Um, but it's not a comprehensive measure of strength. And so the same thing is true for walking speed tests and the upper limb performance tests. Those are standardized assessments done in a with particular rules in a particular way. And they generally are believed to capture your capacity to do that activity. And as we move to the performance measures, we're going to start talking about wearable sensors and each of the different variables that we use for those things are also capturing part of, but not a complete perfect representation of the construct. Right. I think that that's a really important thing to note as well. So if you think about measuring an individual who has a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, they may look very different in their capacity before and after medication, right? So the capacity Mm -hmm. to perform an activity is at a single point in time where performance is over the course of the day and has a lot of other Mm -hmm. influential factors. And it's not that capacity is not a meaningful measure. It is. I use it every day in my practice, but it's the comprehensive, the use of both of them that really gives us the biggest picture of the activity domain in a holistic fashion. Yes. And, you know, I like this distinction that you guys are making and also this concept that our measurements are not perfect. Like I think sometimes when we get in our little box and we have to check things off and we're doing everything clinically, you know, we're like, oh, we're doing sort of, the best we can. And we are in that moment, but it's not the end, right? Like we need to think a little bit more about exactly what did I just measure and how good is that measurement and how representative is it of this human that's in front of me, which gets tricky in a busy clinical environment for sure. So thanks for adding that, Carrie. I think that's really helpful. All right. So that gives us a a little bit of understanding here of capacity versus performance. So let's start thinking about what you did to measure these. So we chose to measure upper limb capacity using the action research arm test, which is the probably one of the more popular tests that's used both in clinical practice and research. It's a fairly comprehensive test of 19 different items, and it evaluates your capability of reaching, grasping, and manipulating objects, which is the fundamental thing that you do with your upper extremities. We chose to measure um, walking using the 10-meter walk test because that is also the most common um, and well-accepted, reliable, and valid measure of um, walking capacity. We did measure both um, self-selected walking speed as well as fast walking speed. And a really important point for our readers is 
that the two are actually highly correlated in our sample. And we did our analysis. The primary an analysis was done on the fast walking speed, but we actually did the analysis on the self-selected walking speed too, and we got the same results. So we just reported the fast walking speed. So if anybody's wondering if this applies to their self-selected walking speed, the answer is yes. Okay. And I'm curious, actually, while we're talking about gate speed, why the 10 meter walk test and not something like the six minute test that might give a little bit more insight into actual capacity? Well, the 10 meter and the six minute walk are actually highly correlated. Um, the 10 meter walk is a quicker grab. And because of their high correlation, it's just more feasible to collect in a clinical environment. It takes less time. And when you think about mm -hmm. some of the pushes at the professional level to capture an entire battery, so we think about our core battery for adult neurologic rehab, mm -hmm. if two of them are highly correlated and you're short on time, the 10 meter walk is a great way to go that saves a lot of patient facing time. All right. So that's the capacity measures. What about the performance measures? So the upper limb performance measures were measured with bilateral wrist accelerometers. So the, uh, the participants wore them for 48 hours, I think, in this one. And what we did is extracted data from those accelerometers that let us know how active the affected limb from the stroke was compared to the unaffected limb. And um, the variable that we use to represent that is called the use ratio. The use ratio is simply the amount of time that the affected limb is moving divided by the amount of time that the non-affected limb is moving over the course of the wearing period. And the beauty of using the use ratio for our variable is that it's very narrowly distributed in a neurologically intact population. So if I put sensors on all of us on this podcast, we would all have values that were really close to one. Um, and there's a very narrow standard deviation. And so that narrow distribution and very constant value, and it's actually constant across the lifespan, makes it very useful for detecting people that are different from typical, as well as movement towards typical over the course of an intervention. And, and so what about hand dominance? Does that play a factor? So when we take this value in neurologically intact subjects, we divide the hours of activity of the non-dominant hand divided by the dominant hand in it, and it's still the same. So you actually use your limbs on average about eight and a half hours for the non-dominant limb and about nine hours for the dominant limb. So they're statistically different because they're different by 30 minutes. Um, but it's not a huge difference. And in fact, we have many, many papers that um, show you how integrated both limbs need to be in daily life to be active in a lots of different tasks. So I would encourage the readers to pursue some of those other papers um, with this measurement technique. Okay. For the lower limbs, we use the step activity monitor on the less affected side to count the steps per day. Um, and that, again, is a, a common, valid, reliable way to measure um, walking both within the home and throughout the community. We, we don't have a GPS sensor on these folks, so we don't know whether the high number of steps occurred only in the home versus out in the community. Um, but there's some really nice data um, from Dorian Rose's group out of the University of Florida that suggests that to get up to about five or 6,000 steps per day, you got to get out of your house. <laughs> mm -hmm. So so people that are walking more than that are definitely walking outside their house and people that are walking less than that probably aren't. And you had said that for the performance measure for the upper extremity, you 
each time you had a data collection point, you were doing it for 48 hours, correct? Is, was it the same with the walking task? No, the, the um, steps per day were measured over a seven-day period because steps per day tend to be really variable. And um, we also have a paper on that that Carrie is the first author on, and that is also in JNPT. And I, I think it was published in 2020, but I would encourage people to take a look at that because, because steps per day are very variable. So we took it over seven days and then used the average of that recording period um, to document change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think any of us that track our own steps recognize that it can be highly variable depending on what's going on in your life. Yeah. And, and in that other paper, we can see that actually the variability increases with more steps. So people that take a few steps aren't as variable as the people who take lots of steps. Yeah. Also makes sense. All right. So take, just take us quickly kind of through the methods. Sure. So um, one thing that's important is we recruited from five different clinics around the country. Um, it was ourselves in St. Louis. We had three clinics here initially that actually condensed down to two with a merger over time. Um, we collected data from the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab in Chicago with our colleagues up there, and then from Boston University and Terry Ellis's group there. So the fact that we collected data from multiple clinics enhances the generalizability of our findings. We report on data from 156 individuals. People were recruited based on the diagnosis and then whether or not they had goals to improve their upper limb function or goals to improve their walking. So everybody in our study, we didn't decide the goals. The therapist in whatever clinic they were, were said, yes, they have goals to do this. And we actually have a collection of those goals and we're going to be um, analyzing those in an upcoming paper. Participants were measured within the first week of their initial visit to therapy services, and then monthly thereafter till the end of their therapy services. And so it was probably pretty variable in terms of how many measurements you got on individuals, right? Yeah. Because some people are in longer than others. Well, and you had to have two, at least two, right? You had to be in therapy for at least a month right. so that we could see change over time. And then we capped it at six months of therapy, which is a total of seven assessments. Okay. Most people had um, between two and three assessments, which means they were in therapy for six to nine weeks-ish. All right. And so before we talk about the results, you know, as I read the paper, not going to lie, my eyes crossed a little bit trying to get through the statistical stuff. So what I'm hoping for is that, you know, you can sort of give us the big picture takeaway of what you did, you know, particularly with this simulation method in order to figure out individual level standard errors. That's the part that I thought sounded cool, but I didn't exactly know what you did or, or exactly what you meant by that. Sure. So, so, so the overall approach is called longitudinal modeling or hierarchical linear modeling. And people are going to start seeing this more and more. This is going to be the wave of the future because one of the beauties of this kind of um, treatment of data is it actually models the trajectories over time. And we were talking about no measure being perfect earlier. And you can think about each measure you take contains some error. And um, if you, for our readers, if you look at figure one, you can see the dots of the individual measurement points, and then you can see the model trajectory over time. And so 
the the longitudinal modeling allows you to kind of minimize the noise in these clinical measures, and that's really useful. The other thing that it does is it allows you to include people with different numbers of time points. Um, and so, as you know, people don't com all come to, to rehabilitation services for exactly the same number of visits in exactly the same number of months. And so using this approach allows us to include everybody versus only the people that had exactly three months of therapy or something like that. So those are some huge advantages. And, and I think the readers should expect to see that in many, many papers in the future. So what, what essentially we did is we, we took a model of the data, which is in the A portion of figure one. And then, um, as you said, we use simulation. So that model data has some uncertainty about it, right? You can see the dots that are a little further away from the line in some cases. And so you can build this matrices of uncertainty or variance, covariance matrices, essentially. Um, then, and then you resample um, using the parameters of that uncertainty to build an individual's sampling distribution. So each, each level of measurement, each person had a thousand simulations of that particular level of measurement to build these sampling distributions of how they could have changed over time based on their own uncertainties in their own modeling. And then we took one standard error in that sampling distribution as our indicator of a probabilistic determinant of change. And so we, if the actual change that they had from the original model that you see in figure A was bigger than that one standard error, then they were considered to have improved. And if the actual change was not bigger than that one standard error, like you can see in the bottom row of figure one, then that that person was considered not improved on that level of measurement. And this probabilistic decision-making process was actually really valuable because it allowed us to say, you know, 85% probability of whether you changed on that measure or you didn't change on that measure, not dependent on anyone's judgment about what's meaningful or not, right? not dependent on any other strange factors that might have come from other samples. And again, another valuable tool that um, we should expect to see a lot more papers doing um, the simulation or bootstrapping procedures. Okay, so you're using all of the data to kind of figure out this standard error, right? How much noise there is in that individual's data and so how far outside of that they need to be to demonstrate a true change. I think what's really important to take home is that, you know, clinically when we think about how did you judge whether or not your patient changed, right? So there's magnitude and then sometimes you see meaningfulness talked about. So magnitude, if I go from 0 0.05 meters per second to 0.1 meters per second, that may be a big ma magnitude to some people, but it's not really going to change much of what I do. And those MCIDs are anchored in a separate measure. So this is a much more objective way of saying this person changed or didn't change that removes, removes our subjective bias from that decision that tells you in a cohort yeah. of individuals that go to receive outpatient therapy that want to improve their walking or their upper limb use, do they change in capacity and do they change in yeah. performance? Yeah. And I just want to take a second to push the listeners to really look at the discussion in the paper about um, MDCs and MCIDs, because I thought that was really interesting and some good things to think about. All right. But I think people are also really want to know right now, what we want to know is what were the results? So Carrie, do you want to give us a little bit of insight into the results? 
Yes, absolutely. So what we found is that we're really good in our profession in physical therapy and occupational therapy of changing capacity. So our patient's ability to execute a task in a controlled environment at a single point in time. And we're not so good at improving performance. So all is not lost. And I think the really important message, and it anchors back to what we started with, is capacity and performance give us unique pieces of information. And we need to use both of them. You know, we've had a lot of professional pushes in the physical therapy profession to standardize outcome assessments, to, you know, assess a core battery. Um, And we've been doing that. We've been implementing it. We've been using those measures. We've been targeting those measures and we are good at improving them. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what is the most patient-centered measure that we can capture that is patient-directed and that pushes us not just to think about your capacity to execute something, but kind of pushes us to the health and the wellness and and the well-being, the healthy side of how much Mm -hmm. we should be moving in life. And certainly steps per day is one measure of that. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's kind of the most important thing is that we're really good at improving capacity. We're not so hot in improving performance, but it's probably because we're not measuring it and we don't have a lot of ways to measure it now. Mm-hmm. And so I think that where we take this is kind of, you know, how can we start to measure it, talk about it, recognize there's a difference between these two measurements. They are unique. They are distinct. They are certainly complementary. Um, but that we really need to be paying attention to both of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And so, you know, I I thought it was really interesting that you found almost 60% of people had an improved capacity with no improvement in their performance outside of therapy. And so just kind of to reiterate what you said, Carrie, that we're good at that, right? We're good at improving walking speed. We're good at improving people's ability to use their upper extremity, but we're not as good at getting that to translate into everyday life. And we don't even know it because we're not measuring it. Exactly. And we make a lot of assumptions and I am guilty as well. I have written goals such like patient will improve their six minute walk test to walk more in their daily life. And and I'm making a a broad assumption there that if they just get faster, they'll probably do more. And what this data highlights is that that's not necessarily the case. Right. Um, I know that some people get disappointed. Well, we're not improving performance. Well, we do know that capacity and performance are related. They're correlated. So, right. Well, they have to be, right? If you don't have the capacity, you can't do the performance. Right. So what I see is opportunity. So we've leveraged capacity. Mm-hmm. How can we now translate that into changes in performance? So I know sometimes it, people may read this paper and feel like we're, we're you know, behind the ball. We're not doing a good job. I think we are doing a good job and we have the next future mm-hmm. steps to take in measurement and treatment um, to improve our patients in both of these measurements. Right. I mean, I agree. Clearly, the interventions that are happening now is helping to improve people's capacity and we're measuring it. And, you know, most of us are measuring it. So we know that that capacity is improving. But what interventions do we need to improve performance? Because what we're doing right now is not 
cutting the mustard, right? So I want to make an important point. This paper does not tell you anything about what you should do now. It just tells you that you should right. measure now. <laughs> um, and, and actually, you know, one of the things that we are super interested in um, and, and what's coming up for the next five years for us is thinking about how for the upper limb, how we can get this data into the hands of clinicians and ways to do it so that it's not a complicated research-driven methodology, but something that can be accessible to any clinician anywhere. Right. Because we strongly, strongly think that this data, again, they they don't show that we can't improve performance. It just shows that we are not often improving performance in the current delivery system. And so the mm-hmm. most important thing from our perspective is to get this information into people's hands. If you're doing this mm-hmm. with walking, you know, maybe your person has a Fitbit on, maybe your mm-hmm. person has an Apple Watch, maybe it's not perfect, yeah. but it's better than nothing. Um, because the clinicians out there are really creative. If they knew this information, I think they would act differently. Yes. Um, But if they don't know the information, then they can't change. And if the patient knew the information, they might act differently as well. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that so many more patients have access to those things now than they did even five years ago, right? So I think that things are changing quickly and, you know, we just need to, figure out how do we take what they already might have, like an Apple Watch or a Fitbit, and incorporate that somehow in our interventions with people. That kind of approach, Parm, makes you want to think about the treatment of patients not in the medical model. Like it's not they come in and do and I do something to them. Yes. It's more of the music teacher coach model where they come in, I problem solve with them. What are the social and environmental barriers to you walking more? Um, Mm -hmm. What happened yesterday when you could walk a lot? And how is that different from the day before that when you hardly walked at all? So so it becomes a very Mm -hmm. different approach that actually involves a lot more um, problem solving and patient discussion than actually training during the course of the treatment session. Yeah, one of the things I loved in the paper when you talked about like theories as to why this might be occurring is that people, you know, our patients feel like when they come to therapy, they're doing their walking, right? Or they're doing their exercise. And, you know, I think we need to start treating our sessions as just that, like you are demonstrating the capacity that you have, right? Now you got to actually take that capacity and use it every day. I think also what Catherine just said is really important about the medical model. And in the medical model, you come to us for us to, quote, fix you. And that is not the way health mobility works. You come to us so we can help you discover how you can do more in your own life. So it's really a whole flipped approach. It's not now about what you do in my session, just like it's not just about your capacity. It's about what you do around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And it completely changes how you spend your 30, 45, 60, however minutes you have with that patient in therapy. It flips the entire Mm -hmm. model on its head because it's not about Mm -hmm. what you're doing with me. I am not making you better. You are making yourself better. It's behavioral self-management. It's motivational interviewing. I mean, that's getting to the intervention side of things, but the most important thing first is 
You have to know how much they're doing. (laughs) If you don't know how much they're doing, you are making a lot of assumptions where you can't be as specific in those interventions. So we have to start with assessment. We have to measure performance. Yeah. Okay. One quick question about that. Do you feel like there are any self-reported questionnaires that can serve as proxies for performance? So actually, we have a paper about that, too. <laughs> and um, the, the the difference is, so, so performance can either be direct measure of performance, like we're doing with the sensors, or it can be self-report. Yeah. Um, right. You know, if you want to change their self-report, then you should use a self-report measure. If you want to change their direct performance, you should use a direct report measure. What we found in that other paper is they're related. But very few people are what we would call accurate, which means very few people are within plus or minus 10% of both measures. And you have under-reporters and you have over-reporters. And whether you're an Mm -hmm. under or over-reporter changes over time, which is a huge pain, Mm -hmm. right? So so it's not unusual for you to assess somebody and they say, oh, yeah, I do that, I do that, I do that. And then they go home. And they're like, oh, I don't actually, I told her I do that. But now that I'm watching what I'm really doing, I realize I'm not. So if they were to come back in and give that same self-report, they would look like they got worse on the self-report measure, but they're just getting more realistic. Um, They're more aware. Yeah. So, so there are self-report measures. I absolutely think they should be used. You know, the promise um, computer adaptive testing, if you have that built into your clinic is fantastic Mm -hmm. um, because it's short and it can be normed against the other adults in general versus to a particular patient population, which is, I think is incredibly valuable, but it does not replace ways to capture performance. Now between self-report and a fancy dancy sensor in a research study, there's lots of things in the middle and some of them could be patient logs, right? You could ask them Mm -hmm. if the goal is to be, if their goal is to be able to walk in the park with their dog, you know, you could, you could build in incremental steps to get to one lap around the park or 10 laps around the park. And they're documenting that for you if they don't have a device. So there's a lot of creative ways to do it. But if you, again, Mm -hmm. if you don't know that you, you need to be measuring this, you're not thinking of creative ways to do it. The other thing is, is that we've said since the beginning that no measurement is perfect. So triangulation of data is really powerful. A capacity mm-hmm. assessment on top of a perceived performance assessment on top of an objective perform- performance assessment mm-hmm. really gives you a lot of information as a therapist, a lot mm-hmm. of information about how are they perceiving how much they're moving. Are they changing in their capacity over time? So are they implementing some of the things that you're asking them to do at home? How much are they moving at home? Do they recognize when they have a good day? Do they recognize when they have a bad day? What were some of the barriers and facilitators? So maybe it's my years working with Catherine and previous laboratories that more data is better, but I think it's influenced my clinical practice that the triangulation of data is what really brings the picture of the patient and makes you more effective to support them in changing behavior. Yeah, totally. I love it. It's like, I'm so excited. It makes me like want to go see a patient right now. Well, if you think about it, every patient is their own research study, right? Your evaluation, Mm -hmm. you're collecting data, you're making a hypothesis about why you think you're seeing this in the data and what the driving factors are. You're selecting an intervention based on that data and your hypothesis, and then you're applying that intervention and following them over time. So so every patient that you treat really is a research 
study in and of themselves. And if we start thinking about mm-hmm. it that way, what other data could I get to help me understand this problem better? Then, right. of course, the performance data fits very well into that. Yes. Great. Well, you know, I have to say this paper is chock full of so much good information and things that make you think. I feel like we could probably talk for hours, but we're all busy and we don't have hours to talk. So, I, you know, I feel like at least what we've discussed, I hope will bring people to the paper to look at it and um, and really delve in a little bit deeper into the paper. Can I add something? Yes, for sure. Some of the things that readers do is they read the text and they skip the tables and the figures, but the tables and the figures in this paper contain all of the key information. So if you do, don't read anything else, just read the tables and the figures because that's where all the data are. And so figure three shows you lots of examples of different participants so that you can kind of understand the analysis a little bit better. And then the meat of the paper is in table two in terms of the data. But then table three has some really interesting data where you can see like how much change got somebody on average classified to those different categories. And you can think about that point score on that particular test and how that value is similar or different to what your own internal values of what change, relevant change might be. And so there's mm-hmm. there's lots of really good information in here. And I want to, again, just encourage people to really dig deep into the tables and the figures. And, you know, just to kind of piggyback on what you just said, I was just on a podcast recording for a different podcast called Evidence Elevates, where we um, interviewed Dr. Chad Cook. And he does a lot of research on research, which is super interesting. And one of the things that he was talking about in that podcast is that the majority of clinicians will just read the abstract and kind of general bias in abstracts. And then if they do more than read the abstract, it's usually just skim the article. And if I'm 100% honest, like that's kind of where I am because, you know, you don't, there's just so much, there's like so much information that's coming at you all the time. And that's why having things like podcasts and other things that really can, can drill that down um, is helpful. But I will say because of my engineering background, I think I really like to understand the tables and figures. So I'm the opposite. I'll look at those before I before I do the reading. Um, but yeah, but really this whole package here, I think is worth delving into because it is so applicable and it's giving us things that we can, you know, walk into the clinic tomorrow and, and start thinking about and trying to implement. All right. Well, I want to thank you both for being here with us. And you may not realize, but at the end of our podcast, we do like to ask people what they enjoy doing when they're not working. So Carrie, let's start with you. What do you like to do when you're not working? Um, Well, I have three little boys. I spend a lot of time with them and going to sporting (laughs) events. Um, So I'm a soccer, basketball and baseball mom. And then I like to run. Love it. All fun stuff. Got to get my steps per day and my aerobic activity. Yes, totally. And Catherine, what about you? I am also a big runner. Um, I particularly like trail running when I can get out and be in the woods. And I do not have three boys at home. I have a college-age daughter, so I get to spend a lot of time reading books. So I'm an avid fiction reader. Oh, fine. And always, always um, looking for people to share good book recommendations with me. Okay, great. Well, do you have a book recommendation to share with us or tell us what you're reading right now? Um, the one I just finished reading was terrible, but the best book that I've read in the past six months is probably The Lincoln Highway. Yeah, I've heard very good things about that. 
Great. Well, thank you both for being with us. You're very welcome. It was enjoyable. Thank you. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team includes Sarah Zoller, Katie McGrath, Christina Burke, Ken Vinaco, Carly Havard, Jeff Schmidt. I'm Parm Padgett. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a colleague today. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. <laughs> Sarah's constantly on the lookout for bloopers. I may have to pop out about halfway through, so don't feel like it's any uh, representation of how the podcast is going. <laughs> this is really boring. Look <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> okay. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Ooh, that's or, good. You, or you could say, I hope you read the article and then cite it a lot in your future publications. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine and I have done a lot of talks together so we can communicate through our eyes. I see. Wait, our listeners don't see. Catherine's like, no, no, no. Again, the readers can't see me because I'm making um, dots with my fingers, but (laughs) there's waves happening here. If we're completely honest, we've been like, how do we get Catherine Lang on this this podcast? All she does is stroke and we need her to do something other than stroke so we can get her on our podcast. (laughs)